Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. I'm James Fleming, editor and publisher of The Book Collector. In a moment, I'll be making you a truly fabulous offer, but first, today's podcast, for which we've been lucky enough to get as reader the star of stage, film and radio, Jackie Smithwood. Her subject is The Appreciation of Lefty Lewis that was written by Mary Countess Waldegrave, whose husband had been the owner, by descent, of the greater and more valuable part of the papers of Horace Walpole, who died in 1797. What you will now hear, brilliantly spoken, is a ladylike account of Lefty Lewis's virtues. What I can offer you is the truth of the ruthless way in which Lefty teased out of the Waldegraves, who were not particularly well off and lived in a large, damp, ancestral pile, their entire holding of Walpole memorabilia. Here comes the offer. Don't go away, the kettle will switch itself off. The historian Stephen Clark has written an account of these dealings, Collecting Obsession Friendship, which we published in an edition of 300 copies only, 95 pages with some terrific illustrations. It was £16.50, and as a pendant to this magnificent reading, we are delighted to be able to offer it at £10 post-free. All you need do is email info at thebookcollector.co.uk and say, yes please to Lefty, and Emma Brown will do the rest. So, press pause, get a cup of tea, and enjoy yourselves. Our connection with Wilmarth Sheldon Lewis began about 1931. My husband's uncle had died in 1930, and Lefty became aware that Chewton Priory contained a considerable quantity of the Walpole manuscripts, pictures, and other relics which had survived in Waldegrave hands the dispersal sale at Strawberry Hill of 1842. They were now in the hands of a young and very preoccupied new owner, as yet unlearned in the affairs of what Lefty came to call Walpoleshire. Lefty was plainly a born collector. He relates in Collector's Progress that at the age of six he made a cigar box collection of houseflies. By the age of ten he had progressed to stamps, next came coins, then butterflies but by 1922, when he was 27, it was books, almost any kind of book. He collected them, hoping always for a first edition, an interesting autograph or bookplate. Often disappointed, sometimes taken in, he was becoming increasingly incapable of passing any second-hand bookshop without going in to have a look. Perhaps the shade of Horace Walpole began to take a hand when in York one day Lefty went into Mr. Godfrey's shop near the Minster. He describes there what happened. Among the books Mr. Godfrey sold me the next morning was John Henniage Jesse's George Selwyn and his contemporaries, a series of letters addressed to Selwyn by persons who in their day moved in the first ranks of wit, genius and fashion. On a flyleaf of the first volume was written, with manuscript notes by Lady Louisa Stuart, and in a pocket attached to the front cover were Lady Louisa's notes, 
covering thirty-four octavo pages in her firm, small hand. Each volume bore the bookplate The Hersel, a place that meant no more to me than did George Selwyn or Lady Louisa herself. This was a work, said Mr. Godfrey, that should be in every gentleman's library. And on his say-so, I bought it for thirty-five shillings. At home in Farmington that autumn, I sat one night waiting for three dinner guests. In front of me were hundreds of books I had bought during the past two years. They were, for the most part, inexpensive editions of the English classics, together with my Macefield collection, which I had completed in England with the purchase long desired of Seawater Ballads, 1902. A completed collection is a journey ended, and although I had heard of Macefield manuscripts and corrected proof sheets which revealed new heights of collecting, the light was fading from my Macefield shelf. Here, I thought, is all English literature spread out before me, and I am not really interested in any of it. Now, if I could only get going on someone... After dinner on this fateful night, my guests asked to see the books that I had brought during the summer, before we settled down to the business of the evening, Bridge. I gave the first volume of Jessie's Selwyn to one of them, and took out for her reading Lady Louisa's notes from their envelope. Presently, my guest insisted on reading them aloud. Poor Miss Pelham had always been fond of play, at which the impatience of her disposition made her always sure to lose. As she grew old, all other passions merged in that of gaming, carried to a height equal to whatever it was in any man. She ruined herself, and would have ruined her sister, if the mild and excellent Miss Mary's friends had not risen in a body, and almost forced the latter to leave the house where they lived together, and withdraw to one of her own, which the other never forgave. Poor, poor Miss Pelham. She was a person one could not help pitying with all her faults. I have myself seen her at that villainous faro table, putting the guinea she had perhaps borrowed on a card, with the tears running down her face, the wreck of what had been high-minded and generous. Mr. Fox, Lord Holland's education of him, will account for many of his faults, but also for some of his virtues. It was a system of the most unlimited indulgence of every passion, whim and caprice. A great dinner was given at Holland House to all the foreign ministers. The children came in at the dessert. Charles, then in petticoats, spying a large bowl of cream in the middle of the table, had a desire to get into it. Lord Holland insisted he should be gratified, and in spite of Lady Holland's remonstrances, had it placed on the floor for the child to jump in and splash about at his pleasure. That night we played no bridge. Lady Louisa had for us a special fascination, for she might have been a neighbour of mine, a relation of my guests, a lady who in her day had also moved in the first ranks of wit, genius and fashion. When my guests left, I went to my small collection of books on 18th century life to find out about this Lady Louisa Stuart who had come in answer to my wish for a person to collect. 
It took me months to find out that a selection of her remarks on the Selwyn correspondence that I owned had been printed as footnotes by James A. Home in his privately printed Letters and Journal of Lady Mary Cook. That the Hursel was the seat of his brother, the Earl of Hume, and that Lord Hume had recently sold some books, among them my copy of Jess's Selwyn. Meanwhile, I had encountered over and over again the name of Horace Walpole. So it was Lady Louisa Stuart who set Wilmarth Sheldon Lewis on his lifelong course, and chance, if one is content so to describe it, helped her by bringing into leftist hands at an early stage a nucleus of Horace Walpole relics so vivid as to direct that strong collector's instinct which had long been in search of a wholly satisfying object on to this man Lady Louisa mentioned so often. Soon the occult force that guides collectors became so strongly developed in Lefty that I usually knew when I entered a shop whether there was anything in it for me, just as I am told a snake charmer knows whether there is a snake in a clump of grass. If I felt there was something I would say I'd like to look around and would wander off by myself, I always found a book, manuscript or print that I wanted. Characteristically, Lefty had to make sure before he succumbed that the moral character of the man who now began so greatly to fascinate him was one for which he could feel sympathy and respect. Horace Walpole had had a pretty bad press in the 19th century. Two crimes especially were laid at his door. First, that he had hounded the boy Chatterton to his death, and secondly, that he had been cold-hearted and unkind to poor old blind Madame du Defon. It took Lefty a very short time to find that Horace was quite guiltless of the first charge and had been much maligned about it. And as to the second, his reaction to the embarrassing infatuation the poor old lady developed for him was entirely reasonable and did not diminish the great friendship and considerable kindness he showed her all her life. From this point on, Wilmarth, Sheldon Lewis and the Waldegraves, together with many another owner, were set on a collision course. Not only at Chewton, but all over the world, relics of Strawberry Hill and its owner, though they did not yet know it, were on their way to Farmington. By 1931, Lefty had married Anne Burr Ochinglos, and so acquired an assistant of such perception, enthusiasm and charm as matched his own. He had her help. He had money, freedom and time. The world was open to him. Prices in this field were still very reasonable. Horace Walpole had not yet become an investment in the money sense. By the time he did so, Lefty had cornered the market. His first appearance at Chewton Priory was in 1931, two years before we got there. His snake charmer's sense, by then highly developed, had informed him that inside those crenellated walls and Victorian mullion windows there lurked much important Walpoleana. 
He was courteously met, but firmly shown off by Mary, the widow of the ninth Earl Waldegrave, now a very old lady, who was used to literary gentlemen and had her own way with them. She and her husband had amply done their duty by Paget Toynbee and his wife in their early years, and having done so, felt that they had discharged their responsibility towards Walpole's studies. When Sir Lewis Namier turned up, Aunt Mary, who always pronounced his name as if it were French, allowed him into the library, but posted a footman at his elbow just in case. Lefty, in 1931, took a swift look round and evidently decided he had better wait. He waited until 1933, when we had moved to a house near Tewton. Then came this letter. During the last month, I have let myself in for a life sentence. Nothing less than a new edition of H. Walpole's entire correspondence, letters to him as well as from him. As this is much too big a job for one person, I have taken it to Yale and got their cooperation. The Oxford Press will also do whatever it can to help, and the Rockefeller Foundation is contributing an assistant. The first thing to do, of course, is to get as many original letters or photostats of originals as possible. The Toynbees have proved to be inexact transcribers, much to everyone's surprise. I have some 600 letters here now, and hardly one has been published without some change of Walpole's meaning. Chapman of the Clarendon Press is asking various owners of letters to send them up to the British Museum to be photostatted at my expense. All this is leading up to the request that you let me have photostats made of your Walpole manuscripts, particularly want the letters, but should like the memoirs too. This request could not have been received at a more awkward time. The 10th Earl Waldegrave, a lifelong invalid, was dying, soon followed by his mother. The new owner at Tewton had not yet seen or taken possession of the Walpole collection at the Priory. He was faced with the payment of death duties, the paying off of old servants, the reorganisation of the estate office, and the Horace Walpole project seemed an incubus and a last straw. He did not want to send books or manuscripts out of the house before new insurances and valuations had been done. Couldn't the photography, if it must be done, be done on the premises? Lefty replied that there was a marvellously modern German camera available, and the two men could operate it in the library, one man clicking the Leica and the other turning over the estimated 2,400 pages of the man letters. But, said Lefty, this is not so quick as I thought it would be, although the quickest method there is, because ordinarily your days are not nearly as bright as ours at home and a longer exposure is necessary. There is also the men's, to me, monumentally leisurely hours of working. By driving them, they could perhaps get through in a week. The presence of two men plus a driver for a week was just not tolerable in that house at that moment, and we put the matter off as best we could. A little later, when the funerals were over, pressure was renewed. The priory was now empty and dust-sheeted. Then the suggestion was made that transcription might be a defence against this terrible photography. There then took place a curious episode, which lights up a corner of the Lewis personality. At Somerville, 
MHW had made friends with an interesting and rather overwhelming American then reading a bee lit. A very large lady, much flyaway, untidy hair, curious clothes, an incessant smoker and a good deal of a hypochondriac. But a true scholar. Her speciality being Spencer Milton studies. But the width and depth and detail of her knowledge in almost every field was shaming to lesser types, and her subsequent very distinguished career proved that she was of the first water scholastically. When she left Oxford, she longed to stay further in England, but had to earn her living somehow. When this transcription idea was muted at Tewton, the plan was formed that this lady should be lodged near the Priory and that Lefty should employ her to transcribe the man letters. He didn't much like the idea, but could see that we were, for the moment anyway, obstinate about photography, and agreed to this as second best. It was supposed to take the lady about one year, and instalments of her work were to be sent to Farmington as completed. Unfortunately, it soon became plain that correct transcription was totally beyond her powers, and that she had an uncanny knack of making typescript illegible. Just as this was becoming painfully evident, she took a fall from her bicycle and was brought to our house with a fractured skull. Recovery was slow and convalescence long. Lefty was incensed by the whole thing. The scholastic lady was not his type in any way, and inaccuracies and illegibilities had no place in the team working for the Yale edition. His remarks were sarcastic, and the whole matter came to a rather distressing end. By 1935, Lefty had forgiven us, and wrote from Brown's Hotel in July 1935, where he had arrived on another Walpole reconnaissance, I left our librarian in the Yale Library happily returned to her old love, Edmund Spencer. When I came to try and decipher those piles of strangely tight tissue paper, I found it was all but hopeless. Heaven alone knows I fear what they are all about. Enormous industry, goodwill and confusion. What a woman! Not long after this, the photostatic service of the British Museum was called into play. Volumes had to be packed up, insured, conveyed to and returned from the museum and mistakes were sometimes made. At one time, eight volumes were sent to the museum with instructions that every side of every page in every volume should be photostatted and the results sent to Farmington. On arrival, there it was found that by a piece of Homeric nodding, three of the eight volumes had been forgotten and two had been photostatted twice over. All to do over again. Much delay and an explosion of wrath in a letter from Lefty. These sudden comminutory fireworks, occasionally breaking through the measured mildness of Lefty's speech rhythms or his rounded written phrases, came to be something we much looked forward to. I say damn them! Damn them! Damn them! The unfortunate British Museum photostatting operatives. 
Sometimes there was a break to describe the torments. It was hoped that destroyers of warpole material or disrespecters and impeders of the great work were or would be subjected to in the place they either already occupied or would occupy in the next world. In fact, his letters began to be enjoyable and friendship blossomed in spite of a grand swell in them which became more marked and menacing as the thirties moved on their way towards the war. It was soon obvious that Lefty wanted everything we possessed in the way of Walpoleana. Books, prints, pictures, manuscripts, pulls from the Strawberry Hill Press, miniatures, snuff-boxes, or one particular snuff-box, the lot. The first offer came in 1937. The sum offered sounds so absurdly low now that it is misleading to mention it, and even in the values of those times it was, as in all leftist shopping, not exaggeratedly extravagant. The offer was turned down at once, but all the photostatting he could possibly require was promised. GNW wrote, I'm afraid I must prevent you getting your collector's celestial first, but I want you to get your scholarship first. Lefty answered this by saying his offer remained open for a month, even though he thought he was on the brink of discovering that the man letters previously thought to have been destroyed were still in existence, thus much reducing the value of our six volumes, which, although in Horace's writing, were still but transcripts. But the answer was again no and this, for a time, was accepted. Then came the war. Lefty, of course, was in anguish that anybody or anything in England should be at risk from enemy action, but his anguish about the vulnerability of Walpoleana exceeded everything. By 1940, the contents of the Teuton Library were packed in cases and distributed to various places considered safe. The Priory was requisitioned for troops, and MHW and children were evacuated to Canada. Lefty longed for the Walpole collection to be on the safe side of the Atlantic too. The 1937 offer was repeated, and, what was more, he would support the family in America for the duration. Currency regulations were extremely strict, and at first Lefty was deaf to hints that such a bargain was illegal and that even to mention such a thing in censorable letters might land everyone in jail. There was some misunderstanding. Cables and letters crossed each other, and by the time MHW had settled in Canada, Lefty had most generously, but perhaps not totally without ulterior motives, prepared quarters for her near his own house. When she wrote to him, telling him she was temporarily housed by a family of white Russians in Quebec, and meant to stay in Canada. He wrote, philosophically, that he had taken in the family of an Oxonian Sanskrit professor instead, and added, White Russians can be pretty terrible. We have a good many here, and in no time at all one gets below that charming exterior and realises that it wasn't so very long ago that they were Cossacks pillaging the countryside and cooking beefsteaks on the back of their horses. I much prefer our nice Oxonians who collect wildflowers and squash them between blotters. Every time Bristol appears in the headlines, I have an extra wince of horror, 
for I had thought Horace was at Bath, and that a stray bomb might fall on him. Apparently he is at Bristol. However, if he is in a vault, all will be well. Much better than if he were in the cellar of Bainton's shop in Bath. By 1942, Lefty, who was now employed in the American OSS, turned up in London, as usual, in Brown's Hotel. He besought GNW to let him take back with him to the USA three books that he so badly wanted. A vellum-bound volume entitled A Commonplace Book of Verses, Stories, Characters, Letters, etc., 1740, all in Horace Walpole's writing. A similar volume of Poems and Other Pieces by Horace Walpole. And a third one of Political Papers, GNW, now in khaki, met him, handed him the three books, whether as a loan, a present, or a pledge of better things to come was not made clear, and a conversation took place which, in the confusion, pressure, and haste of the occasion, left no very clear recollection in GNW's mind. Lefty went home after writing, There is no use my trying to tell you how much I appreciate you doing this for you know how much they mean to me. Since they came, I have been like a miser fingering his gold. Horribly pleased. In 1943, MHW and family got back to England, and in 1944, GNW was sent to Washington to the British Army staff. He went twice to Farmington and sent home this account. It is difficult to describe Lefty in his own house, he is much older, white-haired and bent with arthritis. He is half Don, half Squire, with an immense fund of general erudition and a very quick mind. Like so many brilliant men, he is exceedingly good at quick brain things. For example, there was recently made a puzzle. All the states of the Union cut out, perfectly blank, no rivers, towns or indications of any sort. The record for doing this puzzle in Washington when he was there was 60 minutes. Half the states are rectangular, and the little New England states are almost meaningless as shapes. He has had a set made up in smooth bakelite, so you can't even tell which way up the pieces are. Last night, talking all the time, smoking his pipe and laughing on an uneven table, he did this puzzle, we timed him on the stopwatch, in 6 minutes 9 seconds. I was ashamed when he named all the Welsh counties and all the English dukes almost before I'd started, and that was supposed to be an Englishman's benefit. Gosh, it's comfortable here. Exactly like a pre-war English country house. Nice, quiet English servants, tons of room everywhere, lots of room where you can sit and read or write, and nobody does anything to bother anyone else. Last night we had a Walpole evening, you know the sort of thing, Lefty running in and out, laying great tomes upon the table, and the excitement and laughter of, and this, oh my, isn't it something, this is the original. But even Homer nods. There is a card index, which begins at the 1842 sale, and traces everything to where it is now. I am described as Sir Geoffrey Knoll, 10th Earl, oh, heaven. Two gross mistakes. It is perfectly clear that Lefty thinks I have already promised to let him have the Waldegrave manuscripts. He hasn't said a word. No more have I. But I've read a lot of things, including my own letters to him, all 
carefully filed. And the books I gave him in 1942 are incidentally catalogued as acquired. He thinks I promised he should have the manuscript then, and I think I must have. Then there was all that business about the manuscript going to finance you. I believe if we keep the pictures and miniatures, we shall do the right thing all round. He should have, I think, the original manuscript for use in producing this great opus, this complete edition of Walpole's writings. And the manuscript should all be together here in Yale for reference as one collection. But the pictures and all the jolly bric-a-brac, which is rather fun to have, together with the things like Bedford's description and the extra illustrated commonplace books we should keep. New York. At breakfast this morning, Lefty came down and we both, in the last three minutes of my visit, blurted out, How do we stand? Lefty said, May I give you a check now? I said, No. You shall have the manuscript and the detached pieces, etc., but I must keep some paraphernalia. We left it that as soon as the war is over, he will come over and we will sort it all out on the spot. That was in 1944. In 1948, relentless as the doom, Lefty and Annie Burr turned up in an ancient hired Daimler at the door of Teuton House, where we were now living, the Priory having mercifully emerged from the war uninhabitable. Life was still at that date pretty austere, and the house was crammed with our children, now seven in number. It was a pretty severe test for anyone used to Farmington standards, but the Lewises endured it until we had prized out of store the two zinc-lined cases in which Lefty's desiderata had been packed. The scene that followed is unforgettable and unforgotten. Annie Burr, Lefty, GNW and MHW. Everyone very tight-lipped, boxes open on the floor. The Lewises were just like merciful dentists or surgeons, determined to get the anguish over as quickly as possible and to waste no time in sympathetic chatter. I take this and this and this and you keep that and that. Annie Burr quietly and swiftly filled the box that was to go, closed it and it was carried to the Daimler. Lefty took his place in the car, box at his feet, and a smile of bliss on his face. Away they went, and the cheque, still of modest dimensions, arrived next day. At this point in the narrative, it would not be out of all reason to say, this was banditry, this turning of the screw was pretty unscrupulous. And so indeed it was but the upshot is quite the opposite of what might be expected. We were left with no sense of injury, no resentment, a momentary wince just once in a while when looking at the list of what he took, but through the whole length of our dealings with Lefty, we were well aware that here was one of the most delightful friendships of our life. After that day in 1948, it was understood that nothing else was to change hands and the topic of further acquisitions was never to be raised again. And this was loyally adhered to, although we had kept quite a lot of things Lefty greatly coveted. What we retained 
was enough to tempt him to brave our poor central heating, our casual housekeeping, and our mendip climate on many more occasions simply for the pleasure of looking at the Richardson portrait, the zinc miniature, the Sevigny snuffbox, the jumbo-sized commonplace book, and the Bedford illustrated descriptions, not to mention the whole run of the journals and memoirs. And to our great pleasure, his friendship extended to the next generation. Our sons and daughters visited him at Farmington when they could. In fact, William and his wife were with him a very few weeks before he died and took what were probably the last photographs of him, sitting in his library, a row of the blue Yale edition on the shelf behind his head. What were the qualities that made him so irresistible? Partly, I think, a sense of humour which never failed and embraced everything, including himself. He knew he was slightly unhinged about Horace Walpole and he laughed at himself about it. His humour bubbles through his writing like bubbles through champagne, often in apparently casual throwaway lines which take a second or two to develop fully in the reader's mind. His talk was a delight. His stories became classics, which one insisted on rehearing at every meeting. For instance, the story of Archbishop Macarios, who, entrapped wickedly by a question of lefties, into exposing his very slender acquaintance with St Paul's epistles, stepped back in embarrassment onto a small electric fire placed nearby to take the edge off the cold in the marble hall in which he was giving audience to distinguished but shivering Americans, a step which generated a definite odour, as it became plain that his Beatitudes petticoats were on fire. This and other well-loved stories had to be repeated at every opportunity with never a word altered from their pristine, classic form. After 1948, his great generosity was turned our way. A very important Waldegrave manuscript that was sold at auction at a price higher than we could give, turned up by parcel post here a few days later with lefty's compliments. The blue volumes of the Yale edition came in regularly with the editor's compliments, and so did lefty's published works with affectionate and light-hearted inscriptions. He continued to come here often enough to enjoy the sight of the things we had denied him. The crashing blow which befell Lefty in life was the loss of Annie Burr, who died in 1959. In addition to all her other qualities as wife and collaborator, she had been, since 1947, his eyes. For in that year began the eye trouble which beset him for the rest of his life. Brilliant eye surgery enabled him thereafter to read with a good deal of ease a good deal of the time, but never with quite normal sight. He faced this disastrous disability with typical courage. Writing of an approaching cataract operation, he said, I am told these days it is nothing but sip-snap and two days on milk toast. When Annie Burr died, Many friends thought he would never lift his head again. But there was in him some element of steel which held him up. 
His grief was total, but so was his courage and self-discipline. When he died, he was part of the way through preparing his Mellon lectures, six of them on Horace Walpole, to be delivered in the National Gallery of Art, Washington. Annie Burr had seen and approved the first four, and he felt her presence still as he finished the last two and delivered the lectures in February and March 1960. With all his apparent light-heartedness about life, he felt disaster with particular intensity. His letter, after the murder of President Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy was Annie Burr's niece, expressed an utmost anguish. The achievement of his life was twofold. First, the editorship of the Yale edition of Horace Walpole's Correspondence. At the outset, he thought this undertaking would last 17 years and fill 30 volumes. In fact, it took 47 years and filled 48. Meticulous American scholarship is sometimes sneered at, but it is true to say that nobody from now on who has anything to do, say, write or think about the second half of the 18th century can do it properly without the help of this edition. It deserves its accolade. The greatest achievement of editorial scholarship in the United States. The second great achievement was the collection, which fills his house at Farmington. The house has been expanded from its original modest square framehouse size to its present capacity, with the old library, new library, newest library, the stack rooms, Lewis's Folly and the Squash Court. A list, however summary, of the 5,000 books in the new library alone, the 3,000 in the fireproof newest library the 6,000 original letters or photostats, the files and cards and indexes, the portraits and drawings and prints and curiosities is apt to have a stunning, if not a definitely repelling effect on a reader. But anyone who has had the luck to get to Farmington and see the beauty of the setting the panelled, shelved, warmed and lighted rooms, the comfort and quiet, the flowers and deeply comfortable chairs, realises that here is that rare thing, perfection. The whole is irradiated also by the consciousness that Lefty, who collected it all, really loved, in every sense of the word, Everything there, really loved it all, knew it all, handled every item with ever-renewed delight to the end of his days. He had favourites, of course, and to end this account of him, one cannot do better than to repeat the fantasy which he used as a prologue to his last book, Rescuing Horace Walpole. To hear him speak this fantasy was a delight, but even reduced to the written word, much of the quality survives. The Fantasy Two years ago, the Almighty called me into his office and said, I am going to destroy every object in your house except one, and you have twenty minutes to choose it. 
I replied. Lord, I don't need twenty seconds. I'll take Bentley's drawings and designs for Strawberry Hill. The Almighty nodded solemnly. For that answer, you may save twenty-five more objects. After a pause, he added, You seem a little dazed, but I know you're not very good at arithmetic. In a louder voice, he explained, Twenty-five and one make twenty-six, and what I'm telling you is that you may save twenty-six objects. He paused to see if I understood. Then he continued, I don't care what they are, books, manuscripts, pictures, furniture, anything you like. I managed to say, Sir, I hope I may have more time to choose them. How much time do you want? Oh, at least a year. A year? His voice was terrible. I think, sir, I can make the choices fairly quickly, but I would like to write them up as I go along. And that's the end of the fantasy and the beginning of this book. That was Jackie Smithwood reading an appreciation of Lefty Lewis written by Mary Countess Waldegrave and published in The Book Collector in 1980. Now don't forget the offer, will you? Collecting Obsession Friendship. 95 pages with some terrific illustrations. £10 post-free. Email info at thebookcollector.co.uk and say yes please to Lefty.